Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here in worship, in the sanctuary here and in the Family Life Center. And I also want to welcome those of you in our extended JCBC family watching online. I want to welcome you into this time of study and worship. If you'll join me, grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Hear these words. Now, the the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership over any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of what, they, what was sold, and they, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There there was a a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's consent. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And, And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal. How is it that, that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You didn't lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. She said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how, how is it that you, that you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and, and died. 
when the young men came in, they, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. This is the reading of the sacred and sometimes disturbing word of God. Now let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the hearing, the interpreting, and the doing of it. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you will now bless the words that proceed from my mouth as we all attempt to interpret your sacred word. We want to be challenged and changed by the truth that emerges from these pages, but we know that it will not happen without your spirit. For we know that, that we will put up our barriers and our defenses, but we pray that your spirit would help us to lay down our arms, to be seen by you, and transformed in a way that renews us for the renewing of this world. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So this is a weird text. It's a weird story. It's part of many places in Scripture that I refer to as biblical weirdness. All right? This may be one of the strangest stories in the New Testament, maybe, of all of the, the sacred word itself. It's one of these kind of stories that if we're not careful, if we're just casual about it, if we just kind of stumble into it and don't take into context the situation around it, then we might do irreparable damage. I mean, think about it. If you're here today and you're at church or listening online for the first time, and maybe you decided to give faith a try, or maybe it's been a little bit, maybe it's been a minute since you've given God a try and you said, I'm going to try it one more time. Let's give this one more shot. And the reading before us is about two people who fall down dead because they keep some of the proceeds from the house they sold. Well, then you may be saying to yourself, well, see, this is why. This, this is why I don't, I don't come. Because what kind of God would strike somebody dead for simply making a profit on the house that they had and sold, right? But if you give me a minute, if you trust the Spirit for a moment and take a trip with me, we might find out something about this text and something underneath it and behind it that has the capacity to transform any one of us. Because one of the principles of biblical interpretation, if we're going to be good students of the Scriptures, if we're going to be good scholars of the Word, one of the, the principles is that it's not simply about what the Scripture says. It's about what the scripture does in the lives of those who hear what it says. I want you to let that hang there for just a moment in front of you. I'm going to say it again. When it comes to interpreting scripture, it's not simply what the scripture says that matters as much as what the scripture does in the lives of those who hear what it says. So there is an original audience who heard this story for the very first time. And the reason Luke chooses to tell us about it is because it had a shaping power on them and who they were becoming. And to understand 
the kind of shaping power that this story may even have for you and me, we have to go way back, way, way back to the Hebrew Bible, to your favorite book and mine, Leviticus. That's right. So the story is this. They are now, millennia ago, they're coming out of slavery from Egypt. And now they're in the wilderness and they are in chaos. And and they are gathered there in the wilderness at the front end of their exodus. And God has brought to them a new arrangement. No longer would God be one who was far off, but God would be introduced to them as their God. And they would be his people and he would be so close that it's like a a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. And as long as they could see, they knew that they were not alone. And there around Exodus chapter 40, we talked about this last week, was the completion of the, of the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like this early prototype of what would later become the permanent temple in Jerusalem. It's like a a, a pre-temple. It's like a mobile temple that could be packed up, moved, and set back up wherever they moved throughout their wilderness journey. But the magic, the power of the tabernacle is that right there in the midst of them was God's abiding place on earth. That in the holy of holies, in the inner sanctum of this meticulously constructed uh, tabernacle, was the presence of Almighty God, of Yahweh. And as long as they could see the smoke and and the fire, they would know that they were near and he was near and they were his people and he was their God. But the construction of the tabernacle, if you'll remember from our study years ago, was so meticulously given, the, the instructions were so meticulous and detailed and orderly that it was set up to reflect the The construction of the universe itself, God there, and around God, certain courts of access to God. And what seems to our contemporary ears to be having to go through hoops and jump over hurdles to get to God in their ancient ears was as progressive as they had ever heard. We actually have access to the nearness of God. But the instructions were not simply meticulous in terms of how to construct the tabernacle. This kind of material, wood here, curtains there, bronze here, gold there, silver in the other place. Not just meticulous were the instructions of how to construct it, but there were also meticulous instructions on how to conduct it. So... You have instructions in the book of Leviticus, Vaikra. You have the instructions to the priests, stand here, but not here. Raise your hands in this way, but not that way. Say these words, but not the other words. Sacrifice this animal, but not the other. Go this far, but no further. Very meticulous were the ordered details. So when you get around about Leviticus 10, there is a strange story that emerges because two of the sons of the high priest Aaron, Aaron, two of the sons of Aaron, without any permission, take this fire and put it in their, their censers. And they light incense. It's an unauthorized fire, the text says. Or if you're a King James Bible reader, it was strange fire. 
And they bound up the fire and stepped over the boundaries of the tabernacle into a portion they were not permitted to go without any permission at all. And the text says that both of these sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, fell dead. They gathered them up, drug them outside the camp, and buried them. Now, it's biblical strangeness. Biblical weirdness, this kind of story, until you realize it's not simply about what the Scripture says. It's about what the Scripture does in the lives of those who hear what it says. So think about an ancient people in chaos. They've just left slavery. Their lives are in disorder, and they require the instruction of God to give them an orderly account of how to live and become my people And so to hear the story of those who cross the boundary into disorder is a reminder to them that there are consequences. And it's possible for your choice to corrupt this new arrangement in the tabernacle. It's possible for what you do to corrupt this new arrangement that God has brought before humankind. Now, this story, if you move fast forward to Acts chapter 4 and 5, is held up as a twin story to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Because in the same way, the beginning of the book of Acts is introducing a new arrangement. Because for years, the temple system, first the tabernacle, and then the temple, and the temple system, and the temple leaders, and the way of the temple was the way of their life. It was not simply a reminder that God was with them and among them and near them, but the temple system was the way by which to care for the widow, the orphan, the resident alien, the stranger, the outcast. Through acts of mercy and justice, the temple was there to establish a kind of reign among the people, the reign of God. But then there's this baby who's born, who we believe with our whole heart is both human and divine. Colossians says of Jesus that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which means now for the first time in human history, there is the awareness that everything the temple was attempting to do, to be a host, a house, a place, a resident for God, is now in a person. And now in a human being, Jesus, there is both divinity and humanity. And through him, he, like this walking, talking, temple, living and breathing with a heart of flesh, actually acts out the activities of the temple. So he brings mercy and compassion and justice. He brings from the margins of life into the center of their consciousness those who are forgotten, those who are hungry and thirsty and strangers and sick. And he brings the power of God's healing touch through him to people. And Jesus on the cross, when he claims that it is finished, we understand one of the most beautiful parts of the crucifixion story is that we're told by the gospel writer that in the temple in that moment on that Friday afternoon, the curtain that separated the inner sanctum from the outer sanctum in the temple was rent. It was ripped from top to bottom as if God himself rent apart any barrier or separation between us and God. And now, through the resurrection, Jesus says, wait, just wait, because there is coming to you 
the spirit that will give you the power to do things you never imagined possible and to be who you never imagined you could be. And so on the day of Pentecost, as we studied two weeks ago, the spirit comes and pours out upon all flesh. And there are no distinctions. There are men and women, old and young, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, and the presence and action of God through the Spirit is poured out into people. And now, in the book of Acts, we see that there is emerging a different kind of temple system. Not one made of stones and bricks and sticks, but one made of hearts of flesh. And the community of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, become what the temple had attempted to be for generations And Luke does an amazing thing in Acts. He holds up the old temple system, which is now being found in dereliction of duty. It's not doing what the temple was attempting to be doing for all these years. And he holds up next to it in juxtaposition against the old temple system, this new temple system of human beings following Jesus. And they now are living out the actions of the temple. They now are the home of God. They now have the divine residing in them, and through acts of power, they're mitigating compassion and mercy. God's healing touch is being brought to people. And then these wonderful stories emerge from Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 that they now, the church, they now are the delivery system for God's power and presence on the earth. So they do some really crazy things. This one guy, Barnabas, he sells a field that he owns and brings all the proceeds and lays it there at the feet of the the apostles. And, And others do the same. And because others do the same, they shared what they had in common, not because they're communists, not because they're socialists, but because they realized it's all grace. And what has been given to me is meant to be given through me to those who are in need. And then Ananias and Sapphira show up. And in this new context, this new arrangement where God is now being found abiding in and with and around human beings, Ananias and Sapphira show up and they sell some property too, but they only bring a portion and they keep back a portion. And Peter, Peter says, what, what, have, what have you done? You, you, you're, you're lying. Not, not, not to us, but you're, you're lying to God. And Luke makes a point that we have to remember to this very day. In the same way that Abihu and Nadab could corrupt the old temple system, the old tabernacle system, by their behavior and choices, we too can corrupt this new temple system of God abiding with us and choosing to move God's power and love through us. So what what was it that was so bad about what they did? I mean, what was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? At first glance, you might think it's greed. You might think that they, they kept some back because they didn't want to give all their money. And that may have been the case. I mean, we could talk about money if you want to. I mean, we could, if I had time, if I had some time, I could talk about the reality that sometimes we hold some back, not because we are greedy, but because we are afraid. 
And we miss out on participating in the thing that the Spirit is doing because we have not given ourselves to it. But I don't think the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was greed. Do you know what I think it was? Deceit. And not just deceit of the apostles and not just deceit of God, but deceit of themselves. You know why? Because they gave a part and they kept a part back, but they acted as if in giving a part, they've given the whole thing. And, and that, in this story, beloved, is where you and I become Ananias and Sapphira. Because again and again and again, you and I do the same thing. We give God a part thinking we've given God the whole thing. But we hold back. And it may not be money that we hold back. But we hold back a part of us thinking we've given God everything. But until we've given God everything, we've given God nothing. See, the story of the book of Acts is absolutely, I mean, on the surface, there's a very physical aspect to the arc of the story. It's the telling of the spreading of the gospel so that the kingdom of Christ is spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the age. And we, through this amazing book in the Bible, we see how it physically, literally swept through the geography of the day. But what I've been telling you these past four or five weeks is that this is not simply about a historical account of how the kingdom spread through geography. I've been saying that there is a kind of geography of your heart. And until the king, the resurrected Jesus, has dominion over every realm of the geography of your heart, then he has no dominion over any of it. Unless he is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Yeah, yeah. So... What, what is it that you have kept back and not fully surrendered to the God? Because sometimes we will give a part thinking we've given the whole thing. So the question is, what part of you have you held back from complete and total surrender to God? It is my opinion that we hold different things back. We don't all hold the same thing back, but we hold it back for the same reason. I mean, some of us do hold back our money, and we don't give to the, the mission or the ministries of the church. We hold back, and I tend to believe it's not simply because we are greedy, although that is possible too. It's really because we're afraid that if, if I relinquish this part of me, I won't be secure enough. I won't be able to, to orchestrate the kind of life that I had hoped and dreamed about. And I, I don't know if I believe when I, when I hear these words, I don't know if I believe seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. I just don't know if I believe. And so I'm afraid. And so I'm going to give God a part of me and I'm going to hold back financially out of fear. Some of us, it's not about money. You know what? Some of us hold back time. And we convince ourselves that because there's not a lot of time, not an endless amount of time, that we don't have time to volunteer, to show up, to serve the Lord's church. 
And we sing a minute ago, hey, FLC, a little while ago in the sanctuary, we sang this great old Baptist hymn, Standing on the Promises. But sometimes if we were to sing more truthfully, it's sitting on the premises. Come on. Come on, because sometimes what we do is we give God parts of our lives, but then if we hold back the time, the precious grace of our time and our presence, then we've not given God everything. And therefore, you hear your pastor stand up and begging you again and again after week, week after week. We need somebody to hold the babies downstairs. We need somebody to teach Sunday school. We need somebody to greet. We need somebody to go on a, a trip with our youth. Somebody somewhere may be giving God part, but holding back time, what part of you has yet to be fully surrendered to God? And it may not be money, and it may not be time, it may be something more hidden or spiritual. It may be a particular sin. And maybe for the most part you confess most of your trouble, most of your sin, and maybe you have repented of most of the things that you know are in violation of God's design for your life, but maybe you've hidden one away so that you don't have to really fully relinquish it. Because if you fully relinquish it and fully confess it before God, then God will make you do something about it. What sin have you held back thinking you've given God the whole thing? And we do that for a number of reasons. It may not simply be because we're afraid we'll have to deal with it. It may be because, you know, when you and I sometimes do wrong, when we sin, when we violate God's way of life that God intends for us, you know what we do? We go back to like the closet in the back of the house where we keep all of our skeletons and we don't confess it or get rid of it because every once in a while sometimes We like to go back and open it up and look at it to remind us and to punish ourselves because we feel so rotten about what we've done. Instead of grabbing that skeleton by the ankle and dragging it outside the camp and nailing it to the cross, what have you kept from him thinking you've given everything to him? And, and you could fill in the blank with, with a hundred other options. Sometimes we hold back our resentment. And we don't lay down at the feet of Jesus our anger. Some of us go around life with this kind of low-grade fever of anger, kind of a generalized anger about stuff, and therefore we lash out at everybody around us. And we blame that person and that leader and that group of people and these people over here when all the while we simply are afraid to acknowledge that we have broken our own life. What have you held back? Is it resentment? Is it bitterness? Is it forgiveness? Has somebody begged you again and again for a second chance and have have confessed their sin to you and asked for reconciliation, but you don't give it? Is it something that you hold back because it gives you some sense of control over them? Because as long as you don't forgive, you're able to lord over them the thing that they did. See, sometimes we, we think that we've given Christ everything, but if we hold back anything, we have given him nothing. F.B. Meyer was a a preacher in the early 20th century. And in Keswick, England in 1904, he told the story of his conversion. And he said when he was converted, 
that night, he saw this vision of Christ the King standing before him with eyes of flaming fire and holding out his hand, asking him, asking FB for the keys to the fortress of his heart. And he said he remembers imagining holding up a ring of keys and giving them to Christ, but before letting go, he took one key off, the one part of his fortress he really wasn't really willing to relinquish, and he put it in his pocket and handed the ring to Christ, and Christ handed the ring right back and said, if I don't have all the keys, I can't be king of the fortress And he pulls back the other key in his hand and in his prayer of confession said, Christ, I don't have the strength to give up this key. But if you will take it from me, you can have it. And Christ took the key and became the true Lord of his life. Beloved, if if he is not Lord of every realm in you, If he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What part of you have you yet relinquished? So, Charles Spurgeon has has this to say about how we sometimes block the hand of God the movement of God's spirit, how sometimes we become a barrier, but we become a barrier for reasons that are different than what we think. Listen to what he says. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ. It's our bigness. It's it's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. And for a million different reasons, you and I, just like Ananias and Sapphira, we hold back something that we think we must remain in charge of. But until we relinquish it all, then we will never feel or see or experience or witness the transforming power of God's love. You are the temple of the Most High God. If there is anything remaining in your temple that has not been turned over to the king of this kingdom, then you will never experience the kind of transforming power that the Spirit wants to bring, not just to you, but through you, to your family, to your kids and grandkids, to your neighbors and coworkers, because you have assumed a posture of total yieldedness.